Shabbat Shalom, everybody. So I've been I've been really worked up for the last couple of weeks, and I've been very anxious to share this this word I am going to have with you. So I hope you'll um, bear with me and uh, indulge me for a little while. I may go a little longer than I usually do, um, but this is so important, uh, so very important. What I have to say today uh, that I hope you will listen very carefully. It has to do with the Word of God. Now, you all know me, and you all know how I'm endlessly hocking you to study the Word, to know the Bible for yourself, so that you cannot be deceived. It's easy to be so. It's a big book. It takes a lot of effort. We get all of that. But it is an effort that you must take because it means your very life, as far as I'm concerned. So I want to share this uh, time with you. It says in the the 119th Psalm, which is an ode to the eternality of the word of God, it says, forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Forever it is settled. However, it doesn't seem to be settled everywhere. Recently, that evil lie of replacement theology is rearing its ugly head again in the body of Messiah. This time, in one of the largest church communities in the United States. It's being promoted in in the most blatant fashion I can even imagine by one of the most popular and influential evangelical pastors in this country. His name is Andy Stanley, if I can get him up there. This guy, very handsome, articulate young man. Okay, you're going to turn the lights out so we can see? All right. So he's this, now listen to me, and this is why I'm getting on, uh, getting on this and not, what do I care what another, uh, you know, evangelical pastor says? Who cares? Typically, that's my, that would be my attitude. Not this time. He's the senior pastor of a network of churches in the Atlanta area. The flagship flagship church is North Point Community Church, but it includes Buckhead Church, Brownsbridge Church, Gwinnett Church, Woodstock City Church, and Decatur Church. Six campuses where over 32,000 attendees come each week. 32,000. That's a city. That's larger than most cities in this country. 32,000 people. And by the way, I'm told that there are at least 1,000 Jewish people who attend his churches. But whatever that matters. So that makes it one of the largest churches. It's about the third largest church in the United States. He's also the founder of North Point Ministries, which is a worldwide Christian television, radio, and social media organization which has a global, global reach. He probably has tens of thousands, even more, who listen to him every, every week on the radio and who knows how many times on television and so on and so forth. So you can see we're not dealing with a nobody. We're dealing with one, what one 
I think it was Time magazine called him one of the 10 most influential religious people in the United States today. People listen to this dude. So we have to say, so I have to say something. Because whether or not you've ever even heard of him before, he, by the way, his father is Dr. Charles Stanley. Most of you have heard of him. Okay. So you see, I'm already worked up, and it's only going to get worse. I'm going to tell you that right now. So just hang on to your hat. Okay. So what precisely is he saying that has me so up, so much so up in arms? In a recent uh, sermon series, he called aftermath, which is taken largely from the book of Acts, chapter 15. You know the Jerusalem Council. He makes claims about the believer's relationship to the Hebrew scriptures that will blow your mind. Because it blew my mind. I had a few extra hairs up here. They're all, now they're gone too. And I think, and here's the, the hard part now. Listen, I, typically I don't like to mess with people's intentions, but... I think he's being deliberate about this. He has a purpose in mind. <clears throat> but I'm going to let him speak for himself. I'm not just going to repeat. I'm going to let him talk to you. And then we'll see what we see together. I will say one thing at the start of this all. Nowhere in his sermon does he draw any kind of a distinction between the Mosaic Covenant and the whole of Tanakh. He probably doesn't even know the difference. That's what I'm going to say. Perhaps it's all the same to him. That might be his first mistake. But there are so many things I could address in this sermon. We would be here all afternoon. If he was taking a, a homiletics course with me, boom, fail. I mean, he's a brilliant speaker. He's very engaging. But you got to tell it like it really is, not like you want it to be. So anyway, I want to address what I consider to be the main thing today. And that is his desire to separate believers, either Jews or non-Jews, from the Hebrew scriptures altogether. This is an ancient heresy, by the way. A man named Marcion tried it a long time ago. But to see it rear its head again in this fashion is amazing. All right. Let's start with his goals. His first, um, this is going to go through seven steps. First one is creating a false dichotomy between Yeshua and Torah. This is his, he is going to, in this, I'm going to set up this excerpt here. Stan, Stanley here is talking about the early community of Jewish believers. Uh, and according to him, now that they're believers in Messiah Yeshua, the Jewish Messiah, they seem confused about their relationship to the Torah. 
This is what he's telling me. He's telling me that these early Jewish believers are confused. The same guys who went to the temple day by day, the same ones who celebrated the holy days and so on and so forth. They were confused. So you listen. Okay, a little bit of Moses, a little bit of Jesus. A little bit of Moses, a little bit of Jesus. Yikes. I'm sorry, no. There was no confusion on the part of the early believers about the role of Torah in the life of those who believed. There was no other scripture. The only scripture that existed was the law of Moses. How many of you remember that on the road to Emmaus, the Messiah who was disguised, the guys didn't even recognize him, was walking with, his two, with two of his disciples. And he asked them, well, you know, listen, what, uh, what's been happening here in Jerusalem? And they said, well, you know, I don't, how could you not have heard, but this guy, you know, we thought he was the Messiah. And it says, from that moment on, Yeshua, using the Torah and the prophets, told them all about it. Told them all about it. A little bit of Moses, a little bit of Jesus. You've got to be kidding me. No confusion at all. In fact, we remember this, these words of Messiah Yeshua also. Oops, where did I go? He said this. He said, do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Everything is not accomplished. We all know that. All right? And then he says this, Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, he shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And he needed to read that. Least. That whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. That's his first. Let's make a separation between Yeshua and the Torah. Then we can move on to other things. So once Yeshua is out, you know, not with the Torah, we can get, there. We can get where we want to go. So let's see. Where shall we go next? So his next objective is casting doubt on the Gentile churches or the church's relationship to the Hebrew Scriptures. Okay? So now in this next segment, he goes on to explain that 20 or so years after the resurrection, Many Gentiles began to believe. And that's true. We know that, right? Cornelius and then many others. And Paul and his ministry begins. Okay. <clears throat> so many Gentiles are beginning to believe. And since the apostles are already confused about their relationship to the Torah, now what are we going to do? Because now there are Gentiles involved. Holy cow. Now we got a real mess. So they're going to call the Jerusalem Council, as if they were confused at the Jerusalem Council. 
I've been to many Jewish councils. I can tell you there was less, there was no confusion. But let's see. Let's see what he has to say about this. Now it's your problem. It's not just their problem. It's that they have a problem with the Old Testament, their relationship. Now, I have a feeling that the disciples, the apostles at the, at the, in my study of the Jerusalem Council, were not confused about their own relationship to the Torah. Nor were they really confused about the relationship that Gentiles should have to the Torah. Now, the only thing they want to decide at the Jerusalem Council is whether or not Gentiles need to convert. It's an issue of conversion. Do they need to first become Jewish people? Is this God's will? Or is it that they should become as they are? That's the question. Okay, so let's see exactly what happened with a few scriptures from Acts chapter 15. So it starts by saying, Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some of the others should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. So there was a disagreement between one faction and the other and another. The reason is Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch, a Gentile city. Most of the people they're dealing with there are non-Jews. And they have a great fellowship. And the, Jewish, and, the, and the Gentile believers there have been receiving the Holy Spirit and all this other stuff. So they're thinking, well, you know, that's as far as it needs to go. However, there are others who are, in, who are based in Jerusalem and other, and other places who are dealing only with Je- Jewish people. And they're saying, no, according, as far as we can tell... This is the way it ought to be. There's not confusion, there's disagreement. There's a difference between confusion and disagreement. Okay? So they're going to So what do they do? They do the right thing. They come together and they discuss it and they try to find God's will in the matter. Okay, no problem. All right. So after some discussion is, you know, some discussion I could tell you being in again in councils with other Jewish believers Jewish leaders you yell and scream kvetch at each other and all that stuff and then we come, then we come to an answer the way it works okay maybe you know maybe in the Episcopal church they don't like disagreeing with each other I don't know but anyway so here's the next scripture this is the decision that they came to Yaakov who is the leader of the community Yaakov the brother of Messiah Yeshua is the leader of the community, and after all of the debate and all the other stuff, this is the conclusion they draw, very peacefully. He says, Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With, the, with this, the words of who? Of who? The prophets agree. Oh, well, wait a minute, Andy, you know, you don't believe in the prophets or something. I don't know. Uh, 
This is what the prophets say. Just as it is written, after these things I'll return, and I'll rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I'll restore it. So that the rest of mankind who seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord. In other words, this is from Amos. It's a prophecy from Amos, in which God has, after he has, you know, discipline the children of Israel in the, in the diaspora and so on. They return, and he's going to rebuild the tabernacle, and the whole world is going to see this, and the nations will come to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the promise. This is the Gentiles' promise of their being part of the people of God. It's right there in the Hebrew Scriptures. doesn't need to wait for something else to happen. Okay? And then finally, thinking, okay, once the nations are drawn into to, to Israel, how will they know what they should do? He says, therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated to idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. A summarization, many have called this, of the Noahide commandments, the commands that God gave to Noah, which are incumbent upon all humankind. They need to be obedient to those. Okay? And so, they have, a, they have their conclusion. The Gentiles, God is accepting the Gentiles without them having to become Jewish. That's, a, that's the conclusion they come. No confusion here. You don't have to. Okay? He says, however, he does say this. He says, For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues every Shabbat. In other words, these people are going to learn about the Word of God because they're going to be taught it every single week. No problem. So they'll learn how to be human beings according to God's will. But What's, so what's the change in the relationship that's supposed to occur between people, Gentile people of faith and, their, and the word that will train them up in the things of God? I'm not understanding how that works. He then goes on in creating a separation between the Gentiles and the Hebrew Scriptures altogether. So in this next segment, he completes the thought he began previously. He makes a complete break between God's promises in the Hebrew Scriptures, completely ignoring Yaakov's appeal to the prophets, which we just looked at, which was for the sake of the Gentiles. And you know what? This allows him to make a complete break with the Jewish people.
apart. Apart. Well, listen, it's exactly, he used that word incorrectly. Their salvation is apart of the covenant that God made with Israel. And yet he wants to break it completely. So that it has no bearing on the life of the church. That's, that's his goal. That, at least it seems to be his goal. But what does the scripture say? So again, we want to take a look at what God's word has to say. And this is from Ephesians chapter 2. It says, therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Messiah, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Messiah Yeshua, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Messiah. Brought near to what? To its predicate. To the covenants and promises of Israel. To the commonwealth of God's people. I mean, what is, he, what is he talking about? Over. It's over. We got something better. You have nothing better if you don't have the former. One is the same as the other. And yet he makes this complete break, ignoring this, for, for instance, this scripture. And I could point to 50 more. In which these things are necessary. You, you need to be, you see, and 32,000 people are listening to this and nodding their heads. And thousands and thousands more in television, radio, social media. Listen, people, if you do not know the word, you are a victim. Or you will be a victim of someone. Someone handsome and clever, you know, articulate, slick presentation, all that sort of thing. I wish that was the end of it. I wish that was the end of it, but we ain't but have done. So it's next. Not only, you may be thinking, gee, that's bad, but it gets worse. Not only does he teach that Gentile believers should leave the Torah, the Tanakh, behind, but Jewish believers need to do so as well. Now we're to leave all the covenants of our fathers behind. Okay. I told you, you know, hair starts standing up and it falls out. It's, it's just that crazy. So, first of all, he utter and utterly and completely misconstrues Peter's meaning when he says that oh, we are saved just as they are. And again, we could go through numerous scriptures, particularly Galatians, and uh, this notion 
that we are saved as that. No, it's they are saved as we are, just as we are. Just the same. By the grace of God, that same grace that he says does not exist in the Hebrew Scriptures. He clearly has not read the Hebrew Scriptures if that's what he thinks. The Hebrew Scriptures is a book of grace, of the graciousness and love of Messiah, of God. Listen, he even wanted to, he, he makes, I did, I'm not showing you his entire sermon, he makes the appeal to that very same scripture that I quoted to you earlier from Amos. Now, if he had read the prophet Amos in his entirety, he would recognize that, yes, it is about God's judgment on Israel because of their failure and because of the Shabbos that were missed and all of this other stuff, but the very chapter, chapter 9, is a chapter about God's grace being poured out again on Israel. God's grace. That very one. And yet here he is telling you there's no grace in it. It's enough to... Yeah, my blood pressure is like really high right now, and I can't afford that. I'm not going to relax on this one, because this is so important. Lives, The lives of many people are involved in this. So there, he says, and now, not only that, but he's saying, what Jews need to do is move in the direction away. And I've already told you that the Gentiles need to move away from the scriptures. Now, what we need to do is get the Jews to move away from the scriptures too. Let's abandon the covenants that our fathers made at Sinai. Let us abandon all of these laws that we have paid such a price for over the centuries. Let it go, babe. It'll be better. Yeah, it'll be cool. He's crazy. Excuse me for that. I don't mean to say that on shops. He's not crazy. Yeah, you're absolutely right. He's not crazy. He's crazy like a fox. And interestingly, I'll let you know a little point to this. Part of his, he's called, he's one of the people that have been branded this sort of postmodern evangelical, which, uh, from what I can discern, means that, you know, scripture light. Let's just deal with reality here and, you know, people the way they are and give people what they want. You know, as if what God's salvation is just another commodity and not something that demands something from us. So he's manipulating the word so that he can make it whatever he chooses it to be. So, here he wants the Jewish people to move away from the scripture to this new thing. Of course, it's all, and listen, the aftermath, it's all, you know, the resurrection of Yeshua, which is the most important thing that ever happened. But let us not make it the only thing that ever happened. All right. Let's go. So, I want to just point your attention to something that the the Apostle Paul has to say many, many years after, many, many years after the Jerusalem Council about this idea of moving away from the Hebrew Scriptures. Let's see if that's what happened to Rav Shaul 30 or 40 years later, okay? Now, let me set this up. It says... Uh, what's happened here, Paul has been sent to Rome. He's imprisoned. 
the first thing he does when he gets to Rome, listen, he's going to Rome, he may get executed, and the very first thing he, decide, he chooses to do is call on the leadership of the Jewish community of Rome. He wants to talk to them. That's the first thing he did. He didn't, he didn't talk to the Pope or, or somebody else like that. He calls on the Jewish community leaders. It says here in Acts 28, the last chapter of Acts. After three days, Paul called together those who were the leading men of the Jews. And when they came together, he began saying to them, Brethren, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers. Nothing. Nothing. Yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem to the hands of the Romans. When they examined me, they were willing to release me because they found no grounds for putting me to death. But when the Jews, the Jewish people in Jerusalem who objected, I was forced to appeal to Caesar, not that I had, not that I had any accusation against my nation. Nothing. For this reason, therefore, I requested to see you and to speak with you. For I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. Sound like a guy who's abandoned his people? Sound like a guy who's abandoned God's promises? I don't think so. And again, I could point to 50 different things that Paul says in different places about his relationship to Torah. Oh, as far as the law is concerned, I'm perfect. And here, in chapter 18, he's taking a Nazarite vow of his own, since we're talking about Nazarite vows today. Right? He, he delays because he wants to celebrate the holy days in the right place. I mean, come on. you know, Read the book. Okay. So now, he's got to complete this thing that Jewish believers can do without the Hebrew scriptures. All of it. In this segment, he completes that idea that we Jewish believers are no longer to be a part of the eternal covenant that God made with our fathers. The covenant Messiah Yeshua said would not pass away until all was complete, remember? right? Rather, if we're to be saved, we must leave it behind. We must. Okay. You know, I can't even imagine what the Messiah would be thinking, was saying to him right now, if he was there. Uh, it's not, Jesus wasn't and, instead of, you see, that's a false dichotomy, people. See, it's a falsehood. It's a false premise to, to set Yeshua apart from his people, to set up Yeshua apart from the Torah. It's false. Don't ever buy into it. It's not an either or. It's a both and. It's a both and. And when one is separated from the other, the whole house of cards falls apart. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. There is no separation here. But he creates one. And not only does he create it, he expects the Jewish people to buy it. And if you're a Jewish believer, and you, you know, if you're a Jewish believer, one of those people who's in this church somewhere, 
you're t- he's telling you, you need to break away from this or else you won't, you know, you can't be saved. Now here, earlier, at the, very early, at the very earliest part of this whole discussion, right, it was can you be Jewish and be saved? Uh, can you be a non-Jew, excuse me, can you be a non-Jew and be saved? And now he's got, he's got you, you know, in 40 minutes, he's got you to, can you be a Jew and be saved? Can you be a Jew who loves God, loves the covenant, who loves Shabbos, who, you know, who wants to do these things and be saved? Pretty cool. Amazing. Okay. So, let's see what the scripture has to say about it. See, I don't want you to just believe me. I want you to believe what the word of God has to say about it, right? Same book he's supposedly expositing here in such fabulous fashion. So this portion is, let me, let me set this up. This is after Paul's third missionary journey. He's been around the world three times. And he comes back to Jerusalem after all those many years. Situation is this, that uh, there are rumors about Paul. You all remember, Paul was the guy who persecuted the church many years ago, so not everybody knows him. Uh, but they've heard lots of things about him, some of which are true and some of which are not. And so he's, uh, he meets with Yaakov again, the leader, and some others, and they uh, discuss the situation with him. And this is what, this is what happens. From Acts 21, it says, When we arrived in Jerusalem with the brothers and sisters, welcomed us gladly. On the next day, Paul went in with us to Yaakov and to the elders who were present. After greeting them, he reported to them in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his service. And when they heard, they began glorifying God. They said, you see, brother, and then they say this. Okay, they have something to say. They're very happy that all these Gentiles are coming believers in Messiah and believers in the God of Abraham. But they have this to say. They said, you see, brother, how many myriads, tens of thousands there are among the Jewish people who have believed. They're all zealous for Torah. Wait, wait, you th- wait a minute. 30 years ago, they cleared it up. I thought it was clear, according to him. They abandoned it. I, obviously, not everybody got the word. Yaakov didn't get the word either. And yet Yaakov was the guy who was the leader of the council. He didn't get it either? What? Okay. So he says, You see, brother, how many? They're zealous for Torah. They've been told about you that you teach all the Jewish people among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to customs. Oh, you mean like Andy's trying to tell us? Uh, What's to be done? No doubt they will hear you've come. So do what we tell you. Here, we got some advice for you. Okay? Do this. We have four men who have a vow on themselves. Nazarite vow, just like we've been talking about today. Take them and purify yourself along with them. Pay their expenses so that they may, have their, they may shave their heads. That way all will realize there's nothing to the things they've been told about you but that you yourself walk in an orderly manner, keeping the Torah. Now, let me just stop here for just a second and talk about the Apostle Paul. 
Do you think that if he had abandoned the Torah, that at this point he wouldn't be telling Yaakov where to shove it? If he really believed it? Because that's exactly the kind of human being he was. This was his perfect opportunity to clear up the whole thing, if he wanted to. If it was me, I would have done it. But he doesn't do that. That's not what he does. He says, they, they repeat the old, uh, you know, the old adage for the Gentiles, the ones who believe, however we've written a letter, or 3,000 years ago we wrote a letter to them, that they just need to abstain from things offered to idols and blood and those things. So what does Paul do? The next day Paul took the men, purifying himself along with them, he went into the temple, announced when the days of purification would be completed, and the sacrifice would be over for each one of them. Boop, no problem. Let's do it. Gives me an opportunity to participate in the mitzvah. No problem. Where's the confusion? Where's the abandonment? This is 30 years later. There's no confusion here. It seems perfectly clear to me, maybe to you. Hey, Andy, you need to listen. All right. Unfortunately, we're not over yet. So now, listen. How far have we come? Well, first we've made a separation between Yeshua and the scriptures. So that allows us to tell the Gentiles they don't need it. And by the way, you Jewish people, you don't need it either. Maybe nobody needs it. Maybe. So let's see. He turns his attention to the moral standards established by the Torah. He's, he's talking about this in the context of, uh, what, was, what was the subject, uh, of sexual immorality. And he began to talk about the different standards of sexual, moral, moral, standards of sexual morality between Jew, Jews and Gentiles in the ancient world. So he, he went into that a little bit. And now he's pinpointing this whole notion of sexual immorality and its bearing on life in the new covenant. Okay. So he turns his attention to the moral standards established by the Torah. And by the way, I think this may be his real target. And uh, see, for having undermined our connection to the Hebrew scriptures, he can now separate us from its moral authority. Well, you heard it from him. You didn't hear that from me. The, the Hebrew scriptures are not the moral standard for any behavior in God's kingdom. For anybody in God's kingdom. There's a now a different moral standard. Now, he does go on and talk a little bit about what he considers it. And he talks about love. It's about love, whatever he thinks love is. Because I could go into some of that, but I'm not going to do that. On, not today, anyway. But love is an amorphous term, my friends, without the, the word of God. It has no meaning apart from God's word. 
We know how to love one another because we know what God set as a standard for how we are to treat one another. Not how we feel about each other. So for him to say that, oh, the Ten Commandments don't mean anything. Torah doesn't mean anything. The Hebrew scriptures have no moral bearing. Where in the world does he think that that whatever standards he has came from? The whole Western world is built on the moral standards set in the Hebrew scriptures. And just to show you, as if I have to, let's just look at a few. So this comes from Ephesians. Now all these quotations are from the he, from the Christian scripture. Oh, honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. That's a direct quote from Deuteronomy, from the fifth commandment. I thought we didn't have to bother with this. I thought that was over. Or maybe this one. He says, Oh no any anything no oh no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves one another has fulfilled the law for the commandments. You shall not commit murder, adultery, you shall not commit murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. That's the other ones. Why bother quoting these if we don't have to do these? If this isn't how he is defining love. This is Paul, how he defines what love is. If there's any other commandment, all are summed up in this thing. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Whoa, 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 whoa. What are you quoting Torah to me for? Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus didn't make that up. He was quoting from Leviticus. Chapter 19. 1918, correct. Why bother with all these quotes from the Hebrew scriptures? They have no bearing on the moral life of the community. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. That's what we're trying to get to. Oh, and for anyone who might think, Oh, but yeah, but that Jesus, you know, that higher level of love that Yeshua was talking about. Listen to this portion from Mark 12, right? One of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognized that he had answered them, answered them well, asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? Yeshua said, listen, let me tell you, I got this new thing, love, that you don't have to worry about. No, that's not what he does. Instead, he quotes from Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Quoting the Hebrew scriptures yet again. What is that? But we don't need this. We can throw that all out, I thought. I'm good. Now I'm getting confused. Okay. Finally, last one. So now, the body 
is completely to be detached from the Jewish people and their scripture. That's the last one. So in this last clip, separation is complete. The new people of God, the church as he would call it, now has an entirely new paradigm upon which to live out its life. Separated from the Jewish people, the Jewish scriptures, and in my mind, the Jewish God. So, let's see. We got something new, we got something better, and it has nothing to do with the old. It's a sad and sorry situation. But Paul the Apostle knew that this business was already afoot in the body of Messiah back then. And so he tried his best to address it. Clearly, it did not entirely work. These words from Romans chapter 11. He said, but if some of the branches were broken off and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partakers with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches, But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. But he's detached it from the root entirely. What can it do but die on the vine? And if that's the way it's going to be, it ought to die. See, we thought, you know, when I first began in this whole thing, it, we, this was rampant everywhere, every single place you ever went. And we thought we were actually making inroads, and maybe we are, at least in some places. But sorry to say that this just, this kind of anti-Semitism, anti-Jewishness, anti-Scripture thing just will not die. And again, I wouldn't even be bothering with this if it was just some you know, country bumpkin preacher somewhere in the middle of nowhere saying these kinds of things. But when this thing takes an international stage, then we have to stand up and say something. Now we're live streaming this thing, so it's going to go on on the internet everywhere we can make it go. And I hope somebody gets mad enough at me to call me up and tell me something bad. So I can get off on them. You know, let me remind us of the words again that the Messiah himself did, said. What happened? Remember? Do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. And I want to warn Andy that, he said, that Yeshua also said, whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same 
shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Least. You want the reference? It's Matthew 5, 17 through 19. Look it up. Friends, let me just say one last word before we close. I know we've gone a little bit longer than usual, but it's so important. You need to know these things yourself. Not just rely on me to tell you them. That means you have to, it takes some effort on your part. You have to study to show yourself approved. And so that no one can fool you. Your knowledge is power. And when you hear this kind of thing, you can stay. I got to tell you, if I was in the audience that day, I would have been, well, well, hold on. Yo, dude, what about? What about this? If you ever hear me saying something that you think is off the wall, I want you to stand up and say, wait a minute, what about this? And by the way, anyone who wants to, we're going to have a discussion in the afternoon session about these very things. If you have questions, come sit, sit with us in the library. We're going to talk about it. And I will go into whatever depth you need in order to demonstrate what I'm saying. And I will answer any question. Listen, the minute we let the word of God go, we throw our anchor away. And then we stand adrift in an ocean that will swallow us whole. Now listen, maybe that's exactly what he wanted to do to unmoor his people from the moral authority of the, of the, of the Messiah, of the scriptures, of the God of Israel, so that he can tell them whatever they want to hear about their lives. Maybe. I don't know. I'm not part of that group. But we have to have a standard by which we live. And it came to us from Sinai. From the very word of God. Articulated again by our Messiah. Delivered to us by our prophets. And by the apostles. By our sages. And we cannot let it go. One last quote. The grass withers, the flowers fade. The breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fade. But let's say it together. But the word of our God stands forever.